This is Jill Janice of Huntress, and you're listening to Signal to Noise. Welcome to episode 31 of the Signal to Noise podcast. Um, I'm Aaron, and with me today I have a guest. Sue, would you like to say hello? Hello! All right, so Sue and I have known each other for, what, 20 years now? Mm, possibly longer. Yeah, it's been a long time. So um, when I started working at this one music store, you know, years and years ago, that's how we met. We've actually been to several NAMM shows. I was thinking about this this morning when I was thinking about this show and stuff. How many NAMM shows did we go to together? Uh, I want to say three or four. I think I think we were three or four. We started just after uh, they moved from kind of bouncing all over the place for the summer show to the Nashville summer show. Yeah, and that's and when I Nashville think, became permanent, right? I think it was right. right that, that time. is when Nashville became permanent, and that is yeah. We we hit like three or four of those shows together. I think. So were you with me when I picked up? The um, because I, I can't remember what show I picked this up at. I'm pretty sure it was a Nashville show. And um, to anyone who hasn't been to a NAM show or has always dreamed of it, um, it's as cool as you think it is, or at least it was. Because I've been hearing reports lately where it doesn't sound like it's as much fun as when we used to go. Um, you know, I was at the uh, oh, the, the right. NAM show just a couple of years ago. Yeah. I was, uh, I, oh my, this is a this is. A, I'm going to totally digress and get off topic because this story is just absolutely hysterical. All right, go for it. So uh, I go to NAMM show with the guys from Lifeblood Picks, whom you actually got me in touch with, yep. uh, Ray and Frank. I've had them great on the show. Great guys. Great guys. Great guys. Uh, so we were looking to try and find some collaborators for them and, and get the picks moving, which actually they are on Amazon right now. That's so you fantastic. can look up, so you can look up lifeblood picks and pick them up off Amazon. They're awesome. Awesome picks. Definitely recommend them. Um, but we went to NAM the one year to try and get, uh, everything rolling. And I want to say it was 14 NAM of 2014. Now you, you know, you've known me for a long time. I'm, I'm a bit old fashioned a bit, you know, um, I was raised with two older brothers and, a, you know, my father is, is turning 79 this year, I believe. Holy cow. I didn't realize he was that old. He is that old. Wow. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I've helped him earn every one of those gray hairs that he no longer <laughs> has in his head. Um, but you know, I grew up with three very chivalrous men in the family. You know, my dad was always opening the door for my mom, always pulling her chair out, always opening the car door for her. Uh, my brothers do the same for their wives. Um, so I'm in Nashville with these three guys that I've never met before. And we're walking around the floor, walking around the floor. I turn around and all of a sudden there's no one around me. Like, all righty. <laughs> Apparently, chivalry has died, ladies and gentlemen. Chivalry is no longer among us. So um, I found myself completely abandoned to my own devices on the NAM floor. Oh, shucks. What a shame. So <laughs> I did what you and I used to do. I started at one end of the floor, and I just 
up and down every aisle, played with every piece of guitar equipment you could imagine. Um, to, to my chagrin, in a couple of places, that kind of old, uh, which you and I have talked about several times before, that, that old kind of, oh, you're a girl, you play guitar, kind of still, because I stopped at a couple of booths and I'm like, I want to try that toy whether it was a guitar toy or whether it was, you know, a couple others. I'm like, you know, yeah. I want to try it. And they're like, oh, you play? Like, dude, seriously? This is the 21st century. I might be old-fashioned, but hey, it's still the 21st century. Girls can play guitars too. So I'm kind of surprised you were still getting that this recently. Because, hmm. I mean, I don't feel like we got a lot of that when you and I went. You know what I mean? We didn't. I There were a couple places that we stopped where I kind of felt like it was – uh, when you and I were going, where everybody was excited because back in those days when dinosaurs ruled the earth, it was uh, kind of a novelty. And to have a chick who played guitar was kind of like, oh, wow, this is cool. Um, you know, it was only one or two booths back in 14 that I ran into that on. But still, they were really surprised. And they were even more surprised when I started shredding. Yeah, when well, you can shred. Yeah, I mean, you know, I picked it up and I started I started wailing and they're like, wow, you really can play. I'm like, well, yeah. I'm really surprised that they're surprised. Cause, I mean, like, I think about the 90s, right? And when, um, when Sue says about dinosaurs roaming the earth, we would mean Dinosaur Jr. because it was the 90s and, you know, alternative rock was big. So, yes. like... Three chords to rule them all. I felt like... And and again, like it's it's been a while. My last NAMM show was two two 2001? Yeah, 2001. It was a California mm-hmm. NAMM. But so... I felt it was like a very, I just just an amazingly wel- welcome environment. Like, like my my only beef with, the, with those older shows, and it was one year in particular, and it seemed to get way better after that because I remember it, it was the year that Bob went with us. I remember that year. Yes, we camped out in tents. Yes, this is when at we the still campground. Out. Yep. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and we're not kidding. We're not making this up. Like um, no, our we, most we of the not. time. We love them to death. They're amazing people. And they're like, hey, you guys mind camping? And like Sue and I were like, listen, if we have to grow a tail so we can sleep upside down on a tree, we'll do it. Because we want to grow the name. I did actually start growing a tail for that that year. And and it's a lovely tail. You know? It is. It is. It still comes in handy on occasion. But so like Bob was there. And I remember Bob and I talking. And and, and Bob Bob was a very conservative guy. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he's, we were talking about I'm like, it seems like there's an excess of – bikini-clad women at this show, you know? And, and Bob looks at me, he's like, I walked past one booth five times, I still don't know what they're actually selling. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, and just for me, like, you know... Thankfully, I didn't notice. I, w- weird, right? <laughs> but I mean, like, I only noticed to the point, because I'm like, for me, and this is going to sound crazy, but like, it, it gets in the way. Like, like I, I don't want to see that at a NAMM show, you know? And, and it's funny, like, um, I was listening to another podcast. I don't know if you listen to this one, too. It's uh, 60 Cycle Hum. And those guys were the, the recent NAMM show, and they were talking about, like, the um, the Guitar World Purchasers guy, where they always have, like, you know, quote-unquote hot girls with, you know, bikinis and guitars and all sort of stuff. And I've never dug those issues, because, one, I don't think that the girls they get are all that attractive. So, no big deal. But, two... That is not what I want to see. I should not have left the phone in this room here. I I would agree with that statement. Actually, I would agree with all of the statements. Um, 
first of all, and and I personally, you know, back in the eighties and nineties when I was playing, yeah, I had this problem in particular with Dean Markley strings. Oh yes, because I agree with Dean you. Markley strings always had half naked women everywhere. I'm like, well, first of all, I'm not into that. Yeah, it's just not my thing. Second of all, every time I looked at these half naked girls playing guitar. They didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I just wanted to jump into the picture and correct their technique. So to that point, do you remember when Dean Markley introduced the pickup? I think it was called the Sweet Spot. Yes. So, and I'll never forget this um, because at the time I was going to school for music business and we we're doing, you know, advertising class, all sorts of stuff. And um, I brought in two different magazines with the same ad. But the ad was run different in the different magazines. So, in um, in the music trades magazine. So, if nobody's you know aware of it or has never read it, there is still a magazine published today called the Music Trades. Um, I still it is available digitally too. By the way, it is digital. And I still like paper though. I'm old fashioned I, that way. I know you like paper, but uh, tree killer. Well, you know, I try to kill as few as possible. But okay. anyway, so. Um, the ad is this big Hershey's kiss, right? And it's like, that's cute. It's the sweet spot. And I remember first seeing it, you know, one of the days we're sitting at work in the music store, right? And I'm flipping through and I'm like, oh, you know, it's a Hershey's kiss. It says the sweet spot, Dean Markley. I'm like, wow, this is kind of cool. This is nice. Well, so I've got a guitar magazine. It, more than likely it was either guitar for the practicing musician, guitar world. One of the ones that had tab back in the nineties, right? Probably uh-huh. guitar for the practicing musician. That was my favorite. But I, f- I flip it open, same ad, something looks different. I can't put my my um, my finger on it. And then, you know, I'm sitting there with uh, Draws, and I think you knew Draws, because he, he worked with his, at the music store a little bit. Yeah, he was um, he was your first drummer in Darkwater. Yes, yeah, the first Darkwater drummer, and still fantastic drummer to this day. Mm-hmm. But so, Draws is looking at it, he's like, there's a naked woman in there. I'm like, what? And if you follow the creases of the foil on the Hershey's Kiss wrapper you can start to make out a naked woman. But that image was not in the industry magazine. So they were very consciously marketing to different groups. Yes, absolutely. Right? Trying to do something subconscious. Now, and that, that's, from, what, that's when I stopped dealing with them. Like I just, I'm like, you know what? No, nah, I, I really don't care about their products. You know, and, and the other thing that I had, any, any, any Dean Markley strings that I had ever purchased, I mean, dear Lord, they, I, I, I snapped them. That they would snap left and right. Yeah, I've never been um, I had that. I had that problem with Daddario as well because I, I remember I was taking jazz lessons up at Duquesne with Mark Cook, and I was talking. I got to talk to. Uh, that was an amazing uh, taking lessons. If you're in the Pittsburgh area, the the guitar department at Duquesne does give private lessons, and they are amazingly talented um so if you're looking for some guitar lessons in the pittsburgh area definitely run up to duquesne and and check out the guitar department because all of those guys teach privately on the weekends um but again i digress i was out there i got to talk to uh ken karsh a lot because ken karsh would come out into the hallway while i was waiting for mark to free up and used to get kind of like free little mini lessons from ken karsh and the man was amazing and uh, he was telling me all about Diodario's strings and how he liked Diodario because they were environmentally friendly. To which I argued because I'm like, you know, when I buy my DR strings, they last for two to three months. When I buy Diodario and D- and uh, you know Dean Markley and all these other strings, they're they're like snapping left and right. I'm uh, I'm using two and three times the number of strings 
regardless of how they're packaged. So that was my other really big problem with Dean Markley was that the stuff just didn't last. Yeah. yeah. To your point on um, D'Addario, though, I, I've never been a big fan of their strings. Like, I've, I've used them. They're, they're not for me. Like, I'm a GHS guy, and, mm-hmm. you know, I, and I know, like, I'm, I'm kind of alone in that one. Um, and I'm a DR girl. Well, yeah, you love your DRs. But so I've got to hand it to D'Addario for the green things that they do. Because, I mean, they were thinking about packaging and going green long before it was in vogue you know and it was like the thing to do and even now when everybody else is catching up and starting to do this quote-unquote green packaging and green things they're already ahead of everybody really thinking about the environment thinking about the sustainability like I, that that impresses me like so i i love their other products because they also do the planet wave stuff so, oh the planet wave stuff is amazing and they, they have some really great stuff under the planet waves yeah uh uh n- name um, but they, they do some really amazing, really affordable things for the beginner guitarists that actually last, which is, um, you know, incredible to be able to get something that is affordable and lasts because most of the stuff you, you buy for like, and I remember after 20, what, 20, lots of years of teaching, yeah. <laughs> you know, my students would, uh, my students would be like, hey, I just tried this thing. And, and a week later, it would break. But Planet Wave stuff never did that. So that is, um, that is a definite plus on the, uh, on the Desario side. Yeah. And plus, I mean, they do so much more than just guitar strings. Like, you know, we, we knew them for, for their guitar strings. They also do the Evans drum heads. Um, I can't mm-hmm. remember the Reed company, but they do so many things. And just across the company, they've always been very... Um, environmentally friendly really doesn't even cover it. Like they're 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 being a good citizen no matter what yeah. they do. Yeah, I think it's the best way to say it. But anyway, coming back to the whole NAM thing. So I can't remember if you were there at this NAM thing. So last week on the show, um, I was talking with Chris about this obstacle tremolo box, and so I love you know I, I love tremolo, no secret on this show. But um, <clears throat> the optical effects fascinate me, right? Where you have like a light sensor. And do you remember when I picked up? the attachment for the guitar where you, yes. you plug it in the guitar. <clears throat> there's a little like, not like a box, but just kind of like, like like a little rectangular thing that you mount on the guitar. You're supposed to mount it with Velcro and then you plug the guitar cable into that. Mm-hmm. And um, it's basically, it's a light sensor. So you could control, you know, your volume kind of give yourself like manual tremolo effects or any kind of volume effects just by moving your hand across it, like kill switch, stutter effects, whatever. Right. We actually were playing with that before you picked one up. Yeah. We were, we were sitting there together. Yeah. And it's, um, it's interesting now they've got, uh, the virtual Jeff is available for, I believe pre-order now. And it's, a uh, it's an outboard whammy bar. So you can put a whammy bar on anything with strings. Now it's an outboard electronic whammy bar. Really? So those, um, outboard kind of effects that go between your instrument and the amp they're starting to gain some serious popularity back then uh we were you know this was a novelty thing and now it's it's coming out uh where there's a lot of stuff that you can do outboard between your guitar and it's all electronic which is amazing yeah because you know you know i'm a new shiny a shiny new toy girl (laughs) yes yes, you know i am a shiny new toy girl line six is one of my favorite companies ever um, (laughs) because they have lots of shiny new toys that I get to buy. Um, But yes, so 
I love this idea of being able to put a whammy on an acoustic guitar or, or the heck, even a violin. Yeah. You know, you, you can you can do an outboard whammy or, you know, these light sensors. There's a lot of stuff that's coming out that fits between your instrument and the amp and alters things electronically, which is awesome because then you don't have to drill the guitar, worry about <laughs> ruining the guitar. Yeah. As, uh, you know, several of my project guitars have gone south rather quickly. <laughs> See, I, I always go back and forth on do I want a mod, do I not want a mod? Um, but just, you know, back to that, that thing, like, I remember when we got it, I'm like, oh, that's a cool idea. But then I'm thinking, like, well, most guitar players, you know, if, if you're a club player, you play in the dark. Mm-hmm. Or a very dimly lit club. So how's that going to work? Is that automatically, like, it's great if you're in a bright room or you're playing, like, outside and sunshine, that sort of thing. Right. But, um, like, I remember I tried to use it once on something. I think one of the dark water recordings. But then it, like, it disappeared. Like, I have no idea what happened to it. And um, when I was back up home in December, and I'll, I'll tell you guys the story about Sue's book collection here in a minute because it kind of goes long. But when I was back home in <laughs> September here. Um, yes, the book I, collection. I found it. And, like, it had been tucked away on a bookshelf. Because, you know, mom and dad are like, hey, can you clean some of this up while you're here? So I was going through, throwing stuff out. I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is where it is. So I, I have that effect back, and I plan to do a demo for it here on the show at some point. Um, probably on YouTube so everybody can see it. Because it's, it's neat. I've, I've never seen another one like it. I've never seen another one like it. I don't even remember what it's called. But I have it with the original packaging still possibly somewhere in this room. Now, so I'm back home in December. I go to visit Sue. You know, I'm over to her house playing guitar. And I ha- happened to look over to her bookcase and I start counting the books that I see. And here's why they're all about Jack the Ripper. She has like 19 different books on Jack the Ripper. And, so, and that doesn't include the digital downloads that are on my iPad. Exactly. This way. is just physical, physical copies, physical books of Jack the Ripper. Right. So I'm reading these like through these Jack the Ripper books. And I look at her and I'm like, Sue, why do you have 19 books on Jack the Ripper? Without missing a beat, she says, want to see my knife collection? <laughs> now, let me explain the whole Jack the Ripper thing. Um, and perha- I, I, I don't know if I've ever explained this to you, but this is another one of those amusing stories that your your listeners will probably enjoy. Why well, knew you've been working on like your Jack the Ripper opera project. I have been working on my Jack the Ripper opera project. And I also have a couple books that are kind of Jack the Ripper fiction-based things that I'm working on, actual uh books, novels that I've been working on for a while as well. Um, the Jack the Ripper thing started when I was 10. Okay. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know me, which are probably most of you, uh, my father was a police officer. Now, around the time I was 10, 79, 80, 81, in that area somewhere, uh, we had just moved to Western Pennsylvania a few years ago. Um, My father was in the kitchen talking to my mother. Now, me being the 10-year-old that I was, like, they're in the kitchen whispering in hushed tones. That means I'm not supposed to hear whatever they're talking about. So, into the kitchen I run. (laughs) And at that time, in, in real life, my father being a cop, he was talking about the Green River Killer, which I, I want to say was 1980, somewhere in there. Were you still uh, I, I in Philly to... at this point? No, no, no. We're out in Pittsburgh. Okay, and so the Green River Pittsburgh. Killer was, I want to say, like Ohio or Michigan or something. Okay. I, I don't remember the details of that particular case. But my dad was likening the Green River Killer to Jack the Ripper. 
So I run into the kitchen knowing that my parents are talking about stuff that I'm not supposed to hear just as I hear Jack the Ripper. So I'm 10. I look at my parents and I say, who's Jack the Ripper? <laughs> my mother goes, never mind. <laughs> my father, ever the educator himself, uh, as a matter of fact, that's probably where I got my, my teaching skills. Uh, well, let me tell you about Jack the Ripper, child. <laughs> he proceeds to spew every incorrect piece of mythos surrounding the case to his 10-year-old daughter. Now, at the age of 10, 10-year-olds 10 being who they are, I thought it would be a brilliant idea to turn this into a musical comedy. I was 10, okay? So anyway. <laughs> well, I'm impressed that you've kept it going that long. Like, <laughs> like that, that's, that's, that's just a testament to your um, determinedness. <laughs> or stubbornness, as some people would say. Well, I was sugarcoating so, a little. You know. A little, a little. So, you know, fast forward a few years. Um, this was 1980. In 1988, which is the 100th year anniversary of the Jack the Ripper killings. I had no idea. Somebody sends to Scotland Yard case files. Apparently back in the Victorian days, before they had proper forensics and all that good stuff, um, the police officers would snip little pieces of the case files to take home as memorabilia. Oh, wow. So someone... Now, now you've got to remember, between World War II and police kind of absconding with bits and pieces of case files for, you know, their files at home and their memorabilia. Right. Um, you've got less than half the actual case files available today to study. Wow. So when you hear me say things like, we're never going to know who Jack the Ripper was, we're probably never going to know who Jack the Ripper was because there's just not enough information for us to go off of. Again, I digress. But in 1998, <laughs> yeah, or 1988, I'm sorry, Somebody sends a big box of Jack the Ripper case files to Scotland Yard anonymously. Wow. So this is a big breakthrough in the case. And of course, it's the 100-year anniversary, and they've just got this big box of files. So the case reopens in a really big way for those of us who are on the periphery of it. And I totally admit to being a completely amateur Ripperologist. I, you know, not, not the, the level of, of Paul Begg and all those guys at all, but a totally, uh, totally amateur ripperologist. But still, you know, back in 1988, folks, yeah. we have no Barnes and Noble. We have no, um, you know, we have no borders. We, we don't have any of these bookstores that you can go in and read at your leisure. So I'm kind of ducking between the aisles, reading whatever I can read on music theory and Jack the Ripper. What a combination, right? Uh, <laughs> so, you know, the book collection starts and I start reading more and more about Jack the Ripper and realizing that what I was originally going to write as a musical comedy back when I was 10 is actually not true. <laughs> that might make it funnier. It might. It, it really might. So, um, so that's where the whole Jack the Ripper thing got started. It got started from my father trying to educate me on the evils of serial killers when I was 10. So... <laughs> And you can see it worked well. So into it worked well. I am, you know, 
you know, aside from that, I, I now, uh, I now fence as well. So, you know, sharp objects continuing on. Well, that's actually what I was going to ask about or mention is like, so, you know, not only do you have your Jack the Ripper collection, your knife collection, now you've taken up fencing. Yes. So, you know, it's pretty much anything involving sharp objects with you, you know, chainsaw juggling. I, you know, chainsaw juggling is, uh, that's going to be a next year thing. I haven't quite gotten into that. I'm still kind of, you know, looking at some chainsaws, figuring out what I want to do, uh, trying to figure out how not to cut myself in half. Um, <laughs> You're killing me. <laughs> so that, that is how the whole Jack the Ripper thing got started. My, my father was trying to educate me as a, you know, a father would educate a child <laughs> if your father happens to be a cop <laughs> and, uh, you know, started out on the vice squad and, you know, uh, actually hung out, not hung out with, but yeah, he actually, uh, he was in the vice squad. So he was in with, uh, not in with, he arrested frequently <laughs> a lot of the mobsters. Better for so, so, you know, his, his whole bend on this stuff was <laughs> a little, a little warped to begin with because he, um, the, the mafia actually, because he was one of the few police officers back in Philadelphia at the time who was not on the take, the mobsters would actually let him arrest them because they trusted him. I, which I was, find that funny. It's yeah. actually, here's even funnier. We found out after his mother died that she was doing, that she had a bookie and she was stuffing her numbers up the, the pedestal of a St. Joseph statue. Oh, jeez. So, so here we are, my dad, the cop and my mom, his wife are pulling out the, uh, you know, pulling out all the ticker tapes from the, uh, from, from the statue. Cause my, my brother's got a hold of the statue. My mom had handed the St. Joseph statue to my brother, Joe. And he goes, Hey, what's this paper in the bottom? And they ended up pulling out all our ticker, all my grandmother's ticker tapes. Well then. <laughs> Very interesting family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This this is actually starting to explain a lot more. I mean, my grandfather on my mother's side, my 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 mom's dad was actually a rum runner during Prohibition. <laughs> I I support that. You know, be, being a big fan of anything alcohol um, mm. related, like you know, I, certainly I'm not the drinker I was when I was younger, but I still appreciate a fine beer and a fine whiskey. So I, I support the rum running. I think that's all right. Hey, and I'm a big rum drinker, so we're good. <laughs> yes, yes, you are. <clears throat> All right, so hey, we've got a ton of things I want to talk about here today. Um, first topic I want to kind of touch on kind of quickly because I know we got a, a lot of things that, that we want to talk about. But um, products that we're snobby towards as guitar players. So something I've been realizing, and I, I, I kind of mentioned this to you, is like with the um, with the gear world right now, like people sit, tend to be kind of snobby towards the big companies like the Fenders, the Gibsons, but especially you know because you know I love stomp boxes. Like I'm a huge yes. stomp box fan. But especially like the boss and the DOD, and mm. I didn't, I didn't pick up on this until again. I'm listening to Sixty Cycle Hum. If you guys haven't checked out Sixty Cycle Hum, check out that show. Very entertaining. Very entertaining. They they actually, you know, tying into what I said a minute ago, um, they do a lot of drinking during that show. <laughs> They'll like polish off two three beers in the course of a show. They tell you what they're drinking. It's a good time because I love beer. I love gear. It rhymes even. But they were talking about, you know, people just hating on boss products to hate on boss products. And, you know, I'm, and 
they even talked about like you know being afraid to mention this sort of stu- stuff like oh if i have a boss pal i'm like man i've i've kind of been that way and i don't want to be that way because i actually like i love boss like you know if, if i look over to my right here i got my pedal board on the floor i've got my uh super feedbacker and distortion on the floor my hm2 uh, my Super Overdrive and my DS1, along with my Fender uh, pedal. So that's what mm-hmm. five. Yeah, I got five Boss pedals just to my right, and that's not even like uh, all my collections. You know, I've been using Boss for so long, and like Boss and DoD. You know, when, when I mean when we were coming up as guitar players, that was pretty much the only options if you wanted a really reliable pedal. Because one of the things I loved about Boss, I mean, especially because you know you know my band. And the kind of places we play, and just you know the, the music we were playing, um, you could take a boss pedal, and it's pretty much going to survive anything. Well, here's and here's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, uh, my brother's ex-wife uh, was in a band, uh, not a very good band. So I'll refrain from mentioning who they were. Actually, good idea. Uh, I thought so, right? Um, my brother's ex-wife was in a band, and the guitarist had a 1959 Les Paul. Oh, my goodness. Like, oh, you have no idea. Like, Holy I Grail to, Les Paul. Like, wow. I, a Holy Grail Les Paul, and I got to play it. Jealous. Very jealous. Ah, you should be. Anyway, <laughs> um, the guitarist had these, uh, I want to say they were like Arian pedals or something. Oh, Arian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I remember Arian. Those. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm out in the audience doing the sound check because I was running sound for them. And the guitarist stomps on this Arion pedal and it flies into pieces. Yep. They were famous for that back in the day. And then half of that pedal flew into pieces into my head. Oh. So, so I grew up being a, a huge fan of boss because boss didn't hit me in the head when somebody else stepped on it. Yeah, and if a boss pedal did hit you in the head, you're not getting up anytime soon because those no, suckers you're are not. built like solid. You know, I, I mean, it is like the tank of the effects world, yep. and I've always been a fan of Boss. Um, I like. Well, you know, I'm no longer a a, a peddler. Yeah, you know, I, I prefer <laughs> a peddler. A peddler. I, prefer, I like that. Um, I know, right? I prefer my all-in-one units, particularly Line 6. Everybody yeah. now knows I'm a huge Line 6 fan. She is. Like, like mm. she's got the, what's, what's your, is your Line 6 guitar the Demonator? No, the Variax. Do I just call it the Demonator? Is there no, one you called? used to call the uh, Steinberger Demon the Demonator. That's where that came from. Okay. Right. So why am I, I – never mind. I digress. Keep going about Boss. But, you know, I was always a big fan of Boss. I loved, especially their clean stuff, their choruses, their reverbs. I always, always loved Boss. And I don't think, particularly for clean, since Boss is owned by Roland and Roland does all the great piano sounds. Right. I think that's why they do clean so well, because they have, you know, the synths and the synths are, you know, they had to have these effects for the synths. And I mean, that's just me pontificating. I, I may or may not be correct, but I really love their clean stuff. Their distortions, I've found better distortion pedals throughout the uh, millennia. But, um, you know, as far as like their clean effects, their choruses, their reverbs, even the noise gates. I used to have a boss noise gate and it was the best 
noise gate that I ever had in my signal chain. The best. Um, I do notice a trend going to, well, since we're using the term micro peddlers, uh, <laughs> you know, a trend yeah. going toward the more boutique pedals, the more, and that's fine because that really gives a lot of people options. Um, and it gives, I think a lot of people, you know, it gives them expressiveness that they don't have when everyone's using the same pedals. I remember you and I used to get into, get into discussions about, letting the batteries run dry to get certain effects out of a pedal or to get a pedal to behave a certain way. Absolutely. As the pedal, uh, they actually have a box now that I saw when I was at NAM. I, I want to say it's a brownout or something, a brown box. I can't remember what it's called, but you could actually change the voltage going into a pedal or to going into a piece of equipment to draw out. It's a, it's a box it's a little brown box goes between your wall outlet and whatever effect you're plugging into and you can dial in voltage changes see i love that kind of thing like my power the power box i have on my pedal board right now i believe it has a variable voltage like that so you can do Mm -hmm. that sag but then um and speaking of boutique pedals um i have the god box fuzz fatale and one of the things i loved about the fuzz fatale not only is it just a great fuzz pedal like so many cool sounds but they thought I had to actually give you a knob so you could emulate the voltage sag. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you could dial in how much sag you wanted on the effect to get these weird sputter effects and things. I'm like, man, this is like, I really appreciate that kind of attention to detail. Because, I mean, you know, as you pointed out, like back in the 90s, um, when, it, when Darkwater was recording, I wanted a big, boomy bass sound. And Four like, very talented guys, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> she'll, she'll, she'll finish that before the end of the show, trust me. So... <laughs> It's been our joke for a long time, but so so I wanted this big boomy bass sound, but then I also needed to have, um, I needed to have my normal punchy sound because there are times I just want like that that big boom boom boom, you know that 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 when you're passing a car stereo like a car and all you feel and hear is the bass from it, and you can't hear anything else. That's the sound I wanted, but then for the rest of the song, I also needed to have a lot of punch, and I'm like, okay, what can I do that could give me that kind of you know thing now. I'm sure people are going to be like, well, you could have used an EQ, could have done this, could have done that. I didn't have an EQ pedal. Like I had my, uh, my, my DD3, which I still have and love, my uh, DOD chorus, my uh, DOD envelope filter, the FX25. Um, I think I would have had the Tremolo, the Voodoo Labs Tremolo on the board at that point, and my, oh, my MXR Phase 90. So that's what I had to work with. So what I did is I would set the envelope filter so um, the, the attack was, was set so I would really have to punch it hard, like really have to hit it hard to, to get the, um, the envelope to trigger, right? Mm-hmm. And I'd have, have the bass sound on it. But then to make sure that I couldn't trigger it, because you know I'm a pretty aggressive player, like I play, right. I play pretty hard, um, I would use a half-dead battery. Right, like I, I had to have a, ba- a, a battery that w- that had enough juice to power the effect, but didn't have enough juice to really let the um, the filters and things trigger the way that it needed. Right, so so yeah, like like I I loved what you could do with just experimenting with that voltage and stuff. And it, and the thing I think a lot of people forget is, for the most part, unless you're going all boutique, and a lot of the boutique pedals can get quite expensive. Yeah. But for the most part, your bosses, your DODs, 
um, those pedals have all gotten less expensive over the years. And, you know, when we were growing up, when we were playing, it was the better part of a paycheck to buy a pedal. Absolutely. I remember when I got my, my first delay pedal, that DD3, like thinking, I'm like, oh, this better be an amazing pedal because I was dropping a lot, of, a lot of cash at that point for that pedal. Yeah. And most retailers back then were not like Guitar Center. And I know Guitar Center gets a lot of crap. But here's one thing that Guitar Center does right. You can go in and play anything you want and try it out. Yeah, that's really uh, important. And, and, you know, it's like the Barnes & Noble and the Borders of the music world. So we had, I remember, you and I very rarely actually left the music store with a paycheck. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, that is absolutely true. Whether it was picks, I mean, we used to go through that CB&K catalog, Coast Bruno and Command, and if there was a, something that even looked like we hadn't tried it yet, that sucker was on order. It was absolutely on order, and one of us was taking it home as soon as that next shipment came in. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so a guitar pedal back then, first of all, minimum wage was not eight or ten dollars or whatever it is now. Uh, minimum wage was like three or four bucks an hour. Yeah. Okay. So you get a paycheck after working 30 or 40 hours a week, you know, you got four hundred dollars, if that, minus taxes, right? And by the time you bought a pedal, I remember uh, one of the first Boss pedals I bought was like uh, was a distortion pedal, and it was like a paycheck. It was like 150, 200 bucks. Yeah, you know they're far less expensive than that now. So times they have changed, and they have changed for for I think better musically speaking. This is an awesome time to be a musician. Really is. I mean, like to your point, I can get a boutique pedal now for about the cost of what some of those boss pedals were back in the day. I right. Mean, like I, I've got sitting on my board, I've got the uh, the Wampler Leviathan. The um, I love Wampler. Oh, me too. I'm really digging I what he does. I love Wampler. If I, you know, and Wampler's like one of those that may turn me back into a peddler, but I, I've got to be honest. I love the fact that my my Line Six stuff. I can plug my Variax into it. I can control the tuning. And the, uh, the 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 guitar that is modeled on my Variax with a step of the foot, I love that it does the amp modeling. I love that I can use it as a USB in to record, and I've got all my sounds lined up. So uh, along the Wampler thing, like I think one of the reasons that you like Wampler, and this is just me speculating, knowing you, but um, he's a tweaker like you're a tweaker. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like it, it'd be nothing for Sue to just, you know, tweak something in the middle of a set, middle of a song, whatever. Wampler's the same way, and he makes his pedals set up that way. So, like, the the, um, the Leviathan is super, super tweakable for a fuzz. Then, like, my Z-Bucks fat Fuzz Factory, I can tweak the hell out of that with so many different knobs. But then, um, I, I think I have a pedal that, that could turn you back into a peddler. I love that we're using the term peddler right now. But um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the, the Catalan Bread Echo Rack. I've had it for about a year now. And um, I don't know, like, I didn't know what the what the original Echo Rec was until I saw this pedal and I started doing the research. But I guess the Echo Rec, and again, I'm going to do a quick synopsis. It was a magnetic delay. So instead of, so like, kind of like a tape delay, but it was a magnetic disc and wire. And you could do all these different settings with it. And so um, Cattle and Bread, they, uh, they got one of those old ones, 
rebuilt it, refurbished it, got it working, and said, okay, now how do we make this into a pedal? And this is one of the coolest sounding delays that, that I have. Like, I, I've, I've got a few different delays. I love my, um, my DD3. It will always be my go-to. But when I want those crazy ethereal sounds, like, so when, next time you're down, you're going to try this one. Like, the, the Echo Rec is just so crazy sounding. Okay. I, I think you'll like that one. I, I will definitely have to. I will definitely have to play with that one of these days. So, what are some other things that you think as guitar players were snobby towards? Because, like, I, I kind of jot this down. Like, I know for me, harmony guitars, and there are some people that like you want to go back and collect old harmonies. But I mean, I have yet to play a harmony guitar that okay. is not going to fall apart in my hands. I, I was going to say harmony guitar. I mean, you, you, you know what I'm snobby towards because we've, we've known each other for, for, and, and I have little nicknames for, for all of the ones that I'm snobby towards. I hate harmony guitars. I've never met a harmony guitar that I haven't had to fix. I hate Rickenbackers. They sound awesome. Oh my God. They sound amazing. But again, I've never met a Rickenbacker that I haven't had to fix. That's a really good point. Like, like even thinking about like the Rick basses, I almost everyone that I've come across, there's always something wrong with the neck. Almost right. every single one. And Ibanez, you know, they, 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 now I, I will give Ibanez props because they're the first ones that came out with the super strat and the really thin, fast necks. But their necks, especially on the lower lines, I mean, you, you breathe and, and you have to readdress the truss. I, I just wasn't a fan of Ibanez. So here's what I think is the problem with that for you. Because you're, you're a player like I'm a player. Like we put a little bit of pressure on the guitar. We kind of pull it to our bodies a little bit, you know. And um, one, one thing that I noticed with Ibanez, because you know I'm an Ibanez fan. Like I love Ibanez. Yeah, but my Variax is a super strat. I don't have that problem. But here's why. Right. And, and, it, and I might be wrong. Maybe I'm remembering the guitar wrong. But so most of the Ibanez necks, especially like the ones that you would have played back in the 90s when they were really popular, they were unfinished. That allows the wood to be much more flexible, much more pliable. And so you can pull it out of tune easier. When you have a hard lacquer finish, like, like I have on my strats, right? It, the guitar neck is much more rigid. So, and, and that's the kind of neck that you and I need. Like that's, I mean, heck, you're a Steinberger player. You know, that, that, that was the, like the perfect guitar for you because of the way that you play. Like you, you grip that guitar, right? You put a lot of power into it. So the Steinberger was the perfect guitar for you because it wasn't going anywhere, you know? Speaking of Steinberger. Yeah. Hey, Ned, you're supposed to have a new guitar line out. Where is it? It's not on your website, man. All right. Not that Ned Steinberger actually listens to me, but hey. But if he does, if he's listening. You if know. he's listening, he knows I'm looking for that guitar because yeah. it was demoed. Winter Nam of 15. That's a year and a half ago, Ned. Come on, let's go. I, I want to, I'm looking for a new toy to buy. So for anyone who hasn't picked up on it yet, Sue's a slight Steinberger fan. I, got, I am. I remember when you got your first one back in the, um, back in the nineties. Uh, it was the nineties. And I did when, when they said I could stand on that guitar neck and it would not break, they were not lying because I did. So, and like, <laughs> You'd ordered it before. Um, you'd ordered it before I started working at the music music store. It's when we were at the original location. Yes. And so I come in, and you're talking about the Steinbergers. I'm like, well, why would I want a Steinberger? And you just look at me. You grab the guitar and whack it against whatever was nearby. It was either like a shelf or like, like some sort of shelf or the door frame or something. And the shelf is indented. Like, like the shelf's like indented. Whatever it was not a scratch on the guitar neck 
And it was still in tune. Yeah, exactly. Like still in tune. And you just look and say, that's why. And I'm like, okay. Like, you know, uh, I'm not going to question this. <laughs> and that was the last time he ever questioned me. <laughs> oh, no. No, it's the last time I questioned you in person. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. This is true. Learn my lesson on that one. Um, yes. But some of the, so some of the other things that I'm snobby toward, um, I, I'm snobby toward pedals in general because I like, and, and you know this, I like to stack my effects and I have so many effects. I could never get a pedal board that fit everything that I would use. You know, when, when I'm lining up like my line six and my amp kit and, and all this other stuff, I have so many different kinds of so many different effects and so many times that I just, I just wouldn't be able to have a pedal board that fits everything. That, that's a really good point. Like I can picture you, you'd be the person who has five different delays all set differently. Yes. You know, and, and they're done that and possibly some that are the same and then other ones just for like the different color and stuff it adds to the sound. So I can okay. see you doing that. So you were talking early about me, me stopping in the middle of a set and tweaking sounds. Yes. Which has happened uh, more than once. Uh, <laughs> but I, I actually had a bit of a flashback. Do you remember the one gig you guys were playing? Yeah. I think you set up kind of a mini, almost like a mini warped tour or a mini Lollapalooza, whatever it was, where you had like four or five local bands come in and we were all there for the day. Oh, this is probably, I think it was when we played Laga, right? Probably, I think it was we play, played Club Laga down in Pittsburgh. And, uh, right, yeah. right, right. And, and uh, I didn't have a band at the time, so I agreed to be road crew. And uh, your guitarist snapped a string on his Floyd, on his Floyd, whatever guitar he had with the Floyd in the middle Sean, of the set. I don't remember if it was Sean or uh, Josh, Josh, but one of them snapped a guitar on the Floyd. I'm sitting there in the middle of a gig trying to restring a Floyd. <laughs> with this. Oh, the things we got ourselves into. Kidding. I love Floyd, but man, changing the strings on him. Well, changing the strings on a Floyd isn't hard, but when you're in the middle of the gig and somebody's trying to use the guitar, that becomes a little hairy. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. All right. So let's talk about some of your other projects you're coming up here or that you're working on. So for anyone who doesn't know, and I know like watching the Twitter feeds that, uh, that I see out there, I think a lot of people listening to the show are also familiar with the YouTube channel, Digital Tour Bus. So um, here's a big secret. Sue actually does some of the editing for Digital Tour Bus. I do. Um, my editing has slowed down a little bit uh, because – of some of the other projects that I have going, uh, which we'll, we'll save those for later. Cause I'm sure you'll hit them. Um, but I love working with Josh. Josh is awesome. I mean, he is just the most laid back guy. All I have to do is shoot him an email going, dude, I'm running late. I don't, I don't do any of the big important ones anymore, but I, I used to do some of the bigger edits that he had. Um, just because my time is a little, is a little tighter, but I do edit. I've been editing for Josh for a couple of years and it's, it's he's actually really great to work with. And, um, you know, he's actually, here's, here's another big secret. The, uh, the new credits that are on the, the front of all of his videos and the end of all of his videos. I actually did those. Oh, nice. Nice. So, um, so yes, I am a hardcore nerd. Yes. Yes. I am geek. Hear me roar. Um, but I did those and, uh, like I said, it's just really great working with Josh. I, 
he is so laid back. And this is his, uh, I always feel bad if I'm running behind because I know this is what he does for a living. Um, so I try not to run behind too much and I should be, I think after this weekend, Josh, I'm actually, I'm actually back on track. How's that? Um, but he is so great to work with. He is so great to work with. He's just really easy to get along with. It does a great job. I mean, he's, he, he goes from, you know, in, interviewing the, the, the A-line guys that, that run through Chicago to, you know, the band that's still touring in a Chevy Impala, you know? <laughs> and I really appreciate that because his channel is so varied. It's, it's not just like all, you know, really small artists or really big artists. Like you really get to see a great um, cross section of, mm-hmm. of all the touring musicians out there. And I think that this is this is a really nice behind the scenes look at stuff. You know, it is, it is. And he has, uh, actually he has several other series as well. Um, he has, he does the one, uh, I can't remember cooking at 65 miles an hour. I think that's it. But he does, uh, how people cook and eat and prepare their meals while they're on the road. That's a great some title. Those, I need some to watch of those, that. Some of those are amazing what these guys can do in the back of a van, like a conversion van. <laughs> it's, it's amazing what they come up with and how they cook. Um, he did the one with, uh, ah, what was the band? I can't remember the band. Um, but they were doing, uh, <laughs> they were trying to, uh, barbecue and they, and they were trying to prepare barbecue and they only had one knife so everybody was like passing the knife around but it was it is a lot of fun it is a lot of fun to do those edits um and it's it's a lot of fun just to see how much how many similarities there are between your your main bands and these guys that are that are still traveling around in in like a a ford transit van or something you know There, there are so many similarities that everybody's kind of dealing with the same stuff. It's, it's really amazing. It's, it's an amazing series to edit and it, it, it has actually gotten me, gotten me into some new bands. Um, it, it's actually cause, cause I, I edit these bands and I'll say, you know, I wonder, and I'll look them up on YouTube or something and you know, I've Sister Sins, one of them. I've I've started following actually a couple of bands because of Digital Tour Bus, which is kind of a neat thing. It's it's exposed me to different music. See, that's kind of cool. Now, speaking of new bands, um, you also do some work with Dark Beauty, right? I do, Liz and Brian. No, no. Here, here's one of those funny things. I used to go to the Art Institute of Pittsburgh. Um, there was a guy there when I was going there named Brian Ziegler. Well, let's fast forward about, Oh, I don't know, 25 years, 30 years, eh, something like that. You know, some, re- some ridiculous number of years. I'm chatting it up with Liz from dark beauty. Cause we were trying to help each other out a little bit, getting the whole fan thing going. And I was watching some dark beauty video. I'm like, Hey, did your guitarist used to go to the, the art Institute of Pittsburgh? And she's like, yes, that's where we met. Like, you know, because Liz used to be out here in Pittsburgh as well. It turns out that I actually went to school with Brian, have known Brian for like, um, what, 91 to now, 90, 90, 91, 92 to now. So a long time I've known Brian. Um, 
so it's really great to be able to sit down and work with them. Uh, Liz is an amazing vocalist. Um, you know, I like my sopranos. I got into opera back when I was 16, 17. Uh, one of the first things that I taught myself how to read sheet music on, because I was so frustrated with the guitar methods that my, that my teachers were giving me back then. Well, I actually went out and bought Tristan and Isolde from Wagner. And I forced myself to sight read through the entire thing. Um, so I've been into opera for a very long time, and as anyone who knows me knows, I'm a huge symphonic metalhead. I mean, give me a soprano over grinding guitars any day, whether it's Tharia, whether it's Simone Simons from Epica, um, you know, Leave Christine, any of that. Give me, give me a classically trained soprano belting out over, well, classically trained sopranos don't belt, but hey, that's a nuance. Um, but give me a classically trained soprano over grinding guitars and pounding drums any day. Um, and I'm into it. Now, Dark Beauty took the soaring soprano, classically trained soaring soprano. As a matter of fact, Liz still takes opera lessons and puts it over progressive rock. And it's progressive rock with almost a Broadway feel. It's just, it's, it's almost like they've created a, their own genre of music. Yeah. It is amazing. And they have done some amazing, amazing things. And for the audience, so when I met Sue, she was really, really into prog- progressive rock. And one of my yes. favorite discussions to have with her was how... Pro- Chris Bent. Well, no. Chris, I said hi. Um, yeah, I'm going to ignore him. That's all right. <laughs> but so we would get into these discussions about how progressive rock, like the progressive rock fans always got upset if the bands tried to actually progress, which is, let's see. And, and here's my argument again, progressive rock. so my argument with progressive rock has always been, if you go from walking upright to crawling on the ground, you're not necessarily progressing. That's kind of regressive actually. But So I think, I think when it comes to music though, we all look at progression differently. Well, that's possible, but I, I look at Marillion, okay? And, and, and as you know, when the Neo-Prog thing hit, I was a huge Marillion head. Oh, yeah, you are all about it. I was all about Marillion, um, up until the infamous split. When they split, they, they, they still did, like, 10-minute songs, but they did 10-minute songs that, you know, that they, it didn't have the quality of arrangement behind it. And I mean, I remember actually being at your house the one day and I remember playing a, a new Marillion piece for you at that point. And you were telling me, well, it's not that bad. I don't know what your problem is. It's not that bad. And then I put in an old Marillion piece for you and you're like, Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. there, there's a difference, but I mean, they've got to grow as artists. You know, I, I've I've suffered this with Metallica over the years as they you know try different things and find themselves. It and and I will I will talk, I think, and again, my fangirlishness is going to show here. So, <laughs> if you're not a Tharia fan, or you you know, bear with me for a second. Tharia's first solo album was this really eclectic, bizarre mix of symphonic metal, classical, and progressive. 
but it was like one song in each genre and they would just kind of keep rolling into, you know, different genres. It was a great experiment. Now, this is also the album that got me into Tarja. I was not, I, I had just gotten into symphonic metal, so I wasn't around for the whole Nightwish nonsense. Um, but when I heard that voice, I was like, wow. She has continued to experiment album from album, but you can tell that she's actually progressing as a songwriter. And she also has a big, if I understand correctly, she was into Genesis and Peter Gabriel. So also comes from a sort of a progressive rock background. Um, you know, but her experiments from, from album to album, I think actually do show growth as an artist. And I'm not just saying that cause I'm a fan girl. Um, <laughs> well, I think a great example of that is, um, the one that you, the album that you sent me where she did all the Ave Maria's. Yes. Like I that, mean, that's an amazing album. That is an amazing album. Yeah. I mean, to, to be able to go from, you know, hard rock, heavy metal, whatever, however you want to classify it to doing full on classically arranged Ave Maria's, uh, one of which she actually wrote. So, I mean, the fact that she can write across multiple genres is just amazing as it is. I have enough problems writing in one genre for crying out loud. <laughs> You have enough problems writing in one time signature. I have you enough know. problems writing in time in, in one time signature or one key. I don't. I don't. I'm not really a onesie kind of person. No, definitely I'm not. not. <laughs> definitely not. I'm not a peddler, and I'm not a onesie <laughs> kind of girl. So there you go. <laughs> oh, you're killing me. All right. So last thing then. So you you kind of mentioned um, you know when you were growing up learning guitar and stuff not having the quality of materials that you wanted to, you know, to, to kind of get to where you wanted to be. Like, and I mean, like, I, I feel like things have progressed a little bit. And honestly, I like, I think we're in a great time right now. Like you turned me on to classical guitar corner, which I think is a fantastic site. Like, like I, I really, shout out to Simon. Yeah. Like it, it really, he's, he's really been doing a lot to, I, I guess kind of push the classical guitar into a 20th century kind of thing. And, and he stays traditional, but yet still modern. And you're about to do that yourself, right? So, so you have a launch coming up here. Why don't you tell us about that? I do have a launch. I, um, you know, I, I've, I've been looking to go back into being a professional musician, which, you know, um, now a lot of us think of, a lot of us think of being a professional musician, you know, getting the gear out and sloughing it from venue to venue to venue. And that's part of what I want to do. I do love to play. I do love to write. But I also try to think about it smartly. Um, and if you look at any business, you know, your day job, my day job, we don't do just one thing in the day job. There's always, there's, uh, there are multiple streams of income, in, income, income. That's the word I want. There are multiple streams of income. So I sat down and I started thinking about it because, as you know, um, one of my biggest gripes throughout my life has been taking great advice – well, has been taking not-so-great advice from very well-meaning people. Um, or you know, we or not up, taking my advice at all. That's just, true. Just, just going to call that one out. <laughs> well, yes. And, and, you know, there are many times that your advice is spot on. I'm not going to actually admit to any of that in writing <laughs> because then I'm locked into it. 
That's all right. I have one listener for sure, Jimmy, and he'll be listening to this episode because he, he wrote in. So shout out to Jimmy. Hey, man, thanks for writing. But um, I've got one person that I know is listening here and, and you know, he'll, he'll be able to, to, to corroborate that she said that occasionally I am right. So that's nice. That's good to know. It is good to know. It is good to know. And it's also, I mean, you're also one of the guys that you're one of the first people that gets anything new I do. So whether it be a song or pieces of, uh, you know, ideas for what have you, I think you were actually the first one that got to see my, my slideshows for the guitar course that, that's coming up. And, you know, we, we are always told, at least we were told when we were growing up, you have to have, a, you have, to have something to fall back on. The music's not going to support you. You have to have something to fall back on. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, small furry animals of all ages, I am <laughs> here to tell you that is horse pucky. <laughs> You can make a living as a musician. Um, am I going to rival Tarja's in income anytime soon? No. Am I going to outsell Metallica anytime soon? No. But between my students and some licensing and, uh, you know, doing your YouTube things and, you know, having a band going out, you can make a decent middle class income. It's very possible. You need to hustle. You need to be organized. And you need to consider multiple streams of income. And that's one of the things that I was doing. Now, you know um, that I had a long string of music business coaches, all in quotes, most of whom were very nice guys. Um, I noticed a trend when I was studying off of these music business coaches. The first thing is, um, you know, one of them, they each had their shtick. Okay, one of them would be, oh, you have to be on social media all the time, every day, all day, every day, social media, blah, 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 blah. The next one would be like, no, 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 you have to do guest blogging all day long, blah, 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 blah. So you spend all of your time on this person's shtick. I spent all of my time on social media. Then I spent all of my time doing guest blogging. And then the whole time I was doing this, I'm like, wait, I'm spending all this time doing all this crap. And I'm not getting anywhere because I'm not writing anything because I'm spending all this time doing this crap. So when I sat down and thought about it, there was one music coach that I was looking up the one day and I saw the magic words gleaming across his website, Berkeley College of Music. <laughs> I was like, ah, speak to me, oh wise and father of the music business. So I find myself talking to Zeus. I just that cracks me up every time. Like, like I know, right? Did you also have an audience with Neptune, possibly Athena, a little bit later? Yeah, but Hera was a little bit pissed. I gotta say, uh, she's grumpy. She's grumpy. She's she's a little grumpy, a little moody. Um, but I was talking to Zeus, and Zeus's thing was, okay, so you want to do this? You want to do this? You want to do this? He's like, there's no reason you can't do all of that. He's like. He's like, the first thing I want you to do is put out a course to get some income rolling in so that you can get out of the day job. Nobody from my day job is actually going to listen to this, right? Probably not, unless you Oops. tell them about it. <laughs> and I probably will because I have a big mouth. But um, here's the deal, though. Like, like to, to your point, you're not saying that you necessarily hate the day job, but it's just like as a musician, and I think anybody listening to this show – as a musician, any of us would rather be making our main living playing guitar. You know, we I mean, would. Who doesn't? Well, mostly you know? pianists and vocalists. 
They don't want to make their living playing so guitar. So I, I, you know what? I disagree on the vocalist because I think the vocalists want to play guitar. <laughs> I really do. I really do. Like, like that. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. So, uh, his first thing was to put out a course. Now, as you know, with any a lot of the other music coaches, they all you know spend time. You've got to put out courses and courses and courses and courses, and then you spend your whole time. And I'll I'll give out another shout out to uh, Klaus Levine, uh, who is actually one of my favorite online teachers, and you know this. Um, but Klaus Levine has some awesome, awesome programs out there. Um, and he's actually between Klaus and Simon Powis on classical guitar corner and, and Klaus, I think it's KlausLevine.com. Uh, between those two, you know, that my playing has come further faster than it was with years and years of teachers trying to get back what I lost during years and years of teaching. Yeah. yeah um, I, so I, between I those two that. guys, they are amazing teachers. So I'm talking to Zeus and Zeus says, you know, put out a course, get the course up and running. That'll be your gateway income stream. And then after that course is selling and you're getting some money from it, you can relaunch and relaunch and relaunch. And then you can, you know, go into doing your writing and doing your licensing and doing this and doing that. And you'll pull yourself into back into being a professional musician. Um, so the thing that I really liked about Zeus was it wasn't one of those, oh, you pay me $75 million a month and I will help you become frustrated and stay right where you are. Um, <laughs> his, his was an actual kind of, his was a come back to me when you need it. This is what you need to do. When you have this done, this is the next step. If you need help with either one of those steps, come back and talk to me. And it was an as-you-needed thing. He was available. When I had a question, he had an answer. Um, and one of the biggest things he said was consider outsourcing. And, you know, when most of us are getting started, we don't have an income stream. Yeah. So we're not looking to outsource. But it was one of the most... You know, I outsourced the the backing tracks for the upcoming course. You know, I outsourced the backing tracks because it was just one more thing that I had to worry about if I didn't. I outsourced the uh, I outsourced a lot of my marketing to Dana from Little Birdie Communications. And Dana has been amazing. <laughs> I mean, just look at the website. The website the job she did on my website far exceeded my expectations. Well, and thanks to Dana, we have a launch date now. <laughs> we do because Dana put a launch date on my website for me. And we had a conversation one day and Dana said, by the way, I think May 31st is a good date for you to launch. It's on your website. Thanks to Dana. I now have a launch date, which is probably a good thing because I have this really bad habit of productively procrastinating. You are a little bit of a procrastinator. Just I a am. Little. I am. I am actually a lot of a procrastinator. But the problem is that I procrastinate productively. So things are getting done. They're just not the things that I need to have done. You know, like, for example, the house got cleaned. I, I didn't make any progress at all, you know, for clean two or three important. weeks on the course. But the house was clean. You That's know. important, you know. It is important. 
Um, so I do have a tendency to productively procrastinate, and Dana has a tendency to not put up with me productively procrastinating. So it works out well. It's a great partnership. <laughs> uh, so one of the things, you know, I was looking at all this stuff on how to set up an online course, and they're all like, survey people, access, and it, it hits the point of overwhelm. So instead of letting myself be overwhelmed, I finally said, what did I have trouble with when I started playing? And my answer was chords, because I hated chords. My random note noodling sounded better than my chords ever could have. So I decided that I was going to build a course about getting the basics down for chords. You know, and this is something it, it's something that, you know, if you've never touched a guitar before, this will get you rolling on some chords up and down the neck, any position, not being capo locked. I hate capos. I'm with you, you know, on that. Talk, talk about things that we are prejudiced against as musicians. I hate capos. They should be illegal. With all of the useless laws that Congress is passing, <laughs> they should outlaw capos for crying out loud. See, Come on, people. Here, here's my thing with capos. I like a capo when you're using it creatively to do something different or interesting. Like I have Andy capos McKee. that drop out some strings, that sort of stuff. But Andy McKee is a is a is a wizard. Yes, with capos. Yeah, he's a great example, right? But like when you're just putting a capo at the first fret, so you can just still play your you know your open chord. CFG. Like, yeah. yeah, I I I don't see a purpose for that. Like just learn to play the bar chord. Learn learn how to. You know, struggle. That's that's what being a great guitar player is 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 about at times. Like you you have to kind of struggle for your art here, <clears throat> right? And you know, side note to all of you people running for president this year, promise to ban capos if you want my vote, because otherwise this may actually be the year that I follow through with my threat threat to write in my dog. Um, <laughs> all right then, um, and we digress. And we digress. I digress a lot. I don't know if you noticed, but. So I put together a course on chords. So not only do you get the basic chords, you get the things that I felt I missed when I was learning chords. Things like, hey, my fingers don't do that. How do I get them to do that? And my teachers, and here's the problem with music teachers for the most part. Most music teachers are people who can play the instrument and never really worked at how to teach. So I would get really awesome advice like, well, you just do it. Well, my fingers aren't doing it. So how do I make them do it? Um, it wasn't until I started taking lessons off Mark Cook that we actually started working on the physicality of getting your fingers to do what they were supposed to do. Mark is an actual teacher. So I put together a lot of the tips and tricks that I found helped me with um, learning to do the chords. You know, it took me a while to realize that bar chords weren't just trying to squeeze the strings between your thumb and finger because all you're going to do is make your hand cramp. You need to pull back a little bit with your arm. That's what gives you the staying power to be able to do bar chord after bar chord after bar chord after bar chord without cramping. You know, your thumb is really just for balance. It's to counterbalance the fingers on the on the neck. It's yeah. not for strength. Yeah. Um, so 
I put together a lot of that. I put together a lot of the times that I struggled. And I know, I, I know a lot of people who have gone through this where, you know, like the E bar chord and the A bar chord, and you're trying to move those up and down the neck, sometimes skipping, you know, six, seven, eight frets. Cause it's the only chord, you know, this course will teach you how to figure out your chords in a block. So you don't have to jump all over the neck. And they're the basic first position chords barred and moved up. So you should be familiar with the basic motion. So I've, I've done a lot of that. I've put a lot of the tips and tricks into this that I struggled with when I was trying to learn chords. Um, you know, and re- recently, um, having gotten into heavy metal and, and doing all that, I've fallen into the trap of doing a lot of power chords and things like that. So, you know, it, it was it was kind of eye-opening for me to jump back into my basic chord exercises because it was like, oh, wow, I can't really play that C minor anymore. We got to got to take a day off and just kind of work on getting the chord chops back. And that was that was actually kind of fun because I had forgotten a lot of what I did when I sat down to do it. I'm like, oh, this is stuff I used to do 20 years ago. No problem. And then I start doing it. I'm like, well, I haven't done it in the last six years. So yes, it is a problem. <laughs> so I've, I've tried to put together the most complete basic chord course that I could with all of the, the physical tips and tricks to, to get your fingers to be able to do what they're supposed to do with all of the kind of knowledge tips and tricks with fitting these shapes together no matter where you're at to, you know, simple substitutions. When can I use a major seventh instead of a major? You know, when can I use a dominant seven instead of a major? That sort of thing. So, you know, it's a good, solid, basic course. If you're looking to start, get started on the guitar, this will definitely get you started. You'll definitely be able to go online and, you know, look up whatever song on whatever tab site and go, oh, I can play these chords. Um, it's also good if you're looking to take your chords up to the next level. I, I don't do a lot of extended chords, but I do do some sevenths, some minor sevenths, some major sevenths. Um, but to take it up to the next level, to go, well, okay, I know my I know my first position chords. I want to get out of being capo locked because, you know, you and I both know as soon as you put that capo on, you lose access to the neck. Oh yeah, you you don't have notes available to you and anytime you're cutting off notes especially on an instrument that only has a three octave range it changes the sound of your guitar i mean you're essentially shortening the scale length of the strings so the strings aren't going to you know vibrate the the way they would if you were you know using the full guitar just so and i mean and and i know people are going to say well you know same thing's happening if you're doing a bar chord or whatever it is but there's just there's a difference in the way the neck vibrates with with your hand than with a piece of metal you know right. what I mean? Because like, if, if I'm using a piece of metal to stop it, so that's one point that is stopping the vibrations. And then if I'm playing these chords at the neck, well, then that's another point. So you kind of have two different things going on that stop the guitar from vibrating the way it naturally would. Right. But if you're playing these chords the way that you talk about in your course here, like the only thing that's you know stopping things from vibrating or whatever um, is is just your hand, right? And and that's that's the natural thing, you know. And I think you brought up a great point about. Um, great players that don't necessarily teach. And that's one of the things that really drew me to Simon, um, especially because, you know, I listen to his podcast too. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but 
he's 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 big on the pedagogy, which is where you are. Because I mean, like you know, when I met you, I was just starting to teach guitar, and we spent so much time talking about not just playing guitar, but like so, how do we communicate this to our students? How do we get this across? How do we make sure that they they have great technique, but we do it in a way where they can progress, where they feel like they're progressing. And so that's that's why I'm excited for you to finally put a lot of these ideas out to the public, you know, Mm -hmm. on, on a mass scale. I am excited as well um, for for obviously the same reasons because I have obviously found some some materials out there that are lacking. I also find a lot of materials out there that are boring. I mean, That's there, there are problem. you know there are a lot of places that I you know I'll, I'll get <laughs> okay going back to Dark Beauty and Brian and Liz and I we were actually on a. Uh, teleseminar webinar the other day and on the webinar the guy put out such crappy boring free content that all three of us actually unsubscribed from his mailing list (laughs) now how bad think about this for a minute boys and girls ladies and gentlemen small furry animals of all ages how bad does free content have to be for you to unsubscribe for to from an email list yeah, How pretty, bad pretty does bad. that have to be? Pretty bad. I mean, you know, I would have rather listened to the cast of the original Star Trek in the recording studio. <laughs> Spock, we need more reverb. Um, so that, that you know, you're onto something there. That could be kind of cool. It could be, except yeah. that most of them are dead. Yeah, but Shatner's not. Shatner's not. Shatner's not. And I'm sure we could digitize the ones who are. Yeah, um, you mean like they did with Tupac? Yes, exactly. Like, like, like daylight holograms. That'd be kind of cool. So, you know, the, the, but I, you know, so one of the things I was really anxious to bring out and actually that my beta testers have mentioned is that I'm not actually all that boring. I actually have like some variation in tone and stuff to my, to what I'm talking about. And I'm, I'm, I, I, I hate to use the word passionate. I really do because it's so overused it and is. everybody's, and everybody's doing the whole, well, I am passionate and he is passionate. And I don't think they understand the meaning of the word passionate. I think it's just a name that they throw around. But, you know, I started playing when I was six. Yeah. I'm really old now. So I've been playing for a very long time. <laughs> and, and for, you know, to kind of put this in perspective for other people that are listening here, like when I met Sue, I was, I can't remember if I started like like my music school stuff at that point, but like I've been in and out of music school and, you know, I knew knew a lot and i had more playing experience like li- live playing experience just thanks to just stuff like jazz band and that sort of stuff as a kid mm-hmm. but you your knowledge of just theory and music to meet to, to meet anybody in their 20s um that knew what sue knew about music having not formally done any sort of like college education about it um was unheard of and i mean still unheard of today it's rare that you you know meet somebody who who knows what you know because you are so passionate about it. You know? Well, and, and here are a couple more anecdotes, and I know we're probably running way over time. Oh, but we're that's absolutely okay. over time. Yeah, we're, we're, we got to start rapping, but you know. Uh, but a couple of little anecdotes. Um, I was 18, 17, 18, uh, maybe even a little bit younger than that. We were visiting my aunt down in Georgia. Uh, anyone, again, anyone who knows me knows I do my yearly trip to Georgia. Give me the beach. Huh. Uh, so I was down with my, and I ran into a woman who was a professional opera singer. And 
at 16, 17, 18, however old I was, I held my own in a music theory conversation with that woman. It was amazing. It was one of the most amazing moments of my life where, you know, it was one of those shining moments where the clouds part and the angel choir goes, and you're like, well, A, I can't imitate angel art, uh, you know, angel choirs and B, I do know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm doing. Um, Another moment that I realized this, and this is uh, a, a little bit of a good, bad thing. I didn't go to music school. And the reason I did not go to music school is that most of my friends that did go to music school graduated a year or so ahead of me. Okay. They would all call me to help them prep for their tests. Oh, I used to have you help me prep for stuff all the time. I know. And, and you know, for me, it wasn't worth the piece of paper to waste four years when I already knew the material. Yeah, I think if you could have gotten to the right school for you, and that and this would have been the hard part is find the right school. Like you could have, you could have really, you could have found somebody that could have taken you in a different direction because well, you you knew so much already. You know, and, I mean, like, and here's I still the sad part. And, he, and here's another sad part: something that I never capitalized on um, when I was taking lessons off Duquesne uh, at Duquesne off Mark Cook. Um, they basically came to me and told me to apply for the Emily Remmer, Emily Remler Scholarship. Now, I remember when the, they started that? Yeah. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Emily Remler, um, between her, Charo, and Leona Boyd, they were like my proof growing up that chicks could play. Leona Boyd was a classical guitarist studied off Andre Segovia. Charo was a flamenco guitarist who also studied off Andre Segovia. Um, Emily Remler was a jazz guitarist. And I thought... They were telling me to apply for the scholarship because I was a girl. And I was like, no, I want to make it on my own merit. You know, yeah. plus it was Duquesne University and it was only like a $500 scholarship. So I still had to come up with like $18 million to finish the rest of it. Little pricey, uh, but great school. Little pricey, but awesome school. Um, so that is one thing that I do regret. I wish I would have pushed forward because I was, at one point, Mark told me I was one of the five students that he actually gave a virtuoso piece to. That's awesome. And I wish I had the presence of mind in in my early 20s, instead of being a stubborn Irish and German woman, um, I wish I would have had the presence of mind to realize what was being placed before me, and I didn't. Um, I do realize now and I know now that I can get back to being that guitarist because it's, you know, it's one of the things after, you know, 10 years of teaching people how to play Mary Had a Little Lamb, you know, and doing nothing else because I, I did own a business where I just taught and taught and taught. I had like 50, 60 students a week, um, um, you know, 50, 60 students a week. I lost a lot of my chops yeah. because I was teaching such rudimentary skills. Um so, this course is actually part of me getting back those chops that I lost. Part of it was very much, hey, I need to get this stuff back. Other people are going to have problems with it because, 
you know, these are things I had problems with. And instead of sitting there and doing survey after survey, and do you want this? And do you want that? And what was your problem playing guitar? I'm like, you know what? If I had those problems, someone else is having those problems. Oh, absolutely. It's very common. So that's where I started. I started with chords. Because most of us, you know, most of us want to play around the campfire. Most people do not pick up the guitar saying, I'm going to be the next Ingvay. I picked up the guitar saying, I, actually, I picked up the guitar saying I was going to be the next Leona Boyd. Um, but, you know, most people don't pick up the guitar with the thought of this is going to be my life. You know? Oh, yeah. So most of people pick up the guitar and say, I want to strum songs around the campfire. This course will let you do that. All right. So it's launching, um, was it, is that Tuesday? May 31st mm -hmm. is a Tuesday, right? I believe it is a Tuesday. Thank you, Dana. So in, in a little... Everyone, thank Dana from Little Birdie Communications for our launch date. Go, Dana. A week. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try and get this episode out quickly. So for anyone who's listening to this when it comes out, um, it's probably still going to be a few days before the course launches, May 31st. We are going to start wrapping up the show here. Um, I do apologize for some of the snafus that have happened. Like, I had a phone sitting in here with me. wasn't expecting people to call, so... I'm not going to be able to edit some of those things out, so hopefully it doesn't sound too terrible. Some things I'll try to edit out. Um, but so May 31st is launching, and I was, I'm actually on the website right now, and I saw that the course is normally going to be about 100 bucks, but um, you're going to have a special introductory price here for launch, it looks like. I am. I am. We're actually going to, I believe, do $49. Yep. Again, Dana's brainchild, so if you, you know... Um, I, I believe I'm the first musician that Dana's working with, so she's going to get all the kinks worked out for me. But if you want to reach out to Dana, uh, you know, it's, it's well worth every penny. It is well worth every penny. She I, will definitely get you where you need to go. I'm looking at the site thinking, I'm like, huh, I could really use a redesign on the uh, signal-to-noise site. I wonder what, what she could do for me. So I, oh, I might she have can to do talk it. to you offline about that one. All right, so guys, so uh, thanks for listening. Um, again, special shout out to Jimmy, who's actually been emailing me. Um, I love it when I when I you know hear from somebody who's listening is great because I like you know Rock texts me and stuff like that. I know he's listening, but you know we're all buddies, so it's nice when somebody who doesn't know uh, know me personally like listens, and it's a lot of fun. So Cheers, Jimmy. Um, exactly. So if anyone else is out there listening, um, hit me up on Twitter and Facebook. It's at sgnl the number two nz. Um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, not Facebook, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Facebook, you'll find me out there, just signal to noise. But I, I, I'm doing a little more, but not much. Um, and then signal to noise dot FM. And this time it's all spelled out. So T-O instead of the number two. Um, I'll, you know, links will be in the podcast, show notes, all that sort of stuff. And uh, Sue, thanks for coming on today. It's been a good time. Hey, no problem. You know, it's always fun to talk gear. I'll have to have you on later. We can see, find some other gear-related topics to talk about because this is pretty much what we do when we get together anyway. Um, and We should really just do a reality show every time we hook up because... That could be funny. That could be some funny stuff here. So, and then I guess last thing, I'll, I'll end with my, my cheesy ending statement until I can think of something better. Um, but but this, is, this is how it goes. So, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, make some noise. <laughs>